It's Lucy Litch, and this is Tiny House Conversations. It's the Australian-based podcast where I interview experienced tiny houses, tiny builders, and adventurers in the tiny world, so you can discover how to create, build, and transition into tiny life. So you want to go tiny, but you might be wondering, where can I park my tiny house? I want to let you know that I have a special unreleased podcast episode of tiny house parking success stories from other tiny houses who were just like you and who have easily managed to find a long-term parking space for their tiny home. Some of them have even found more than one space. So if you want ideas on finding a parking space for your tiny, you can download this episode for free. To get access to it, head over to tinyhouseconversations.com forward slash tiny parking. If you enter your details there, I'll send it straight to your inbox. Now let's intro today's episode. Welcome back to Tiny House Conversations. Joining me on the show today is Elle Payton, who is an experienced tiny houser living in St Kilda in Melbourne, Victoria. So strongly does she feel about the environmental and community benefits of tiny houses that Elle left her corporate job to work in tiny house advocacy. Elle is also a co-founder of Tiny Nonprofit, a co-founder of the Australian Tiny House Association, and most recently, co-founder of the new platform Littlefoot, a platform for small footprint housing in Australia. She also works as a consultant within the industry and heads up the Australian Tiny Houses Facebook community as well. Living in her St Kilda suburban tiny house from where she works, Elle is passionate about the sustainability aspect of tiny living and the potential positive social impacts tiny houses have to offer. And in this conversation, we talk about Elle's experiences of tiny house living, including the process of downsizing and transitioning and the challenges and the best parts for her, the importance of working out your values and needs when it comes to building your tiny house or your tiny life, the current situation with tiny house on wheels regulations in Australia or caravans, Elle's experiences dealing with her local council to get pre-approval for long-term living in her tiny house on wheels in an urban environment in St Kilda. We also talked about the considerations and things to understand when making a case for local council approval for long-term tiny house living and so much more. Now, tiny house regulations is one of, if not the most frequently asked about question, especially if you're at the start of your tiny house journey. If you're in Australia, I recommend checking out the Australian Tiny House Association's website around the situation of tiny house on wheels regulations, as it has three main categories to consider. Road and vehicle regulations, building codes, and planning and dwelling rules. It also has different information for each state, and in the conversation today, you'll hear us touch on these different areas. Now, I'll put a link to the section on regulations on the website in the episode show notes. And if you're outside Australia, you might want to research and get in touch with the Tiny House Association in your state or country to find out the situation with tiny house living where you are. Now, I want to offer a disclaimer for this episode. The information discussed in this conversation is not intended to offer advice to podcast listeners. It is for educational purposes only. 
Please do your own research or seek professional support before making any big decisions about building or living in your tiny house. Or better yet, contact Elle directly for a consultation. Now with that being said, on to the show with Elle. Hi Elle, welcome to Tiny House Conversations and thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Hi Lucy, thank you for having me on. That's my pleasure. And Elle, today, in today's conversation, I'd love to hear more about your own tiny house story and then we'll dive into things uh, where they're currently at with tiny house regulations. And then I'd also love to hear more about all the projects that you're working on because I know that you've got a lot of great offerings and services within the tiny house space. So are you able to start by taking us back to where your tiny house story began and you know, what inspired you to transition into tiny house living? Yeah, sure. So originally for me, it was for environmental reasons. I am an empty nester. I've always been interested in building something with recycled materials or with sustainability in mind. I um, was going through the process of building a shipping container home, um, well, designing a shipping container home. And when I looked at my design, I realised that uh, the walk-in wardrobe was big enough to be somebody's bedroom which to me was somewhat ridiculous given that it's not sustainable to be consuming that many clothes or and it's not an economic use of space and it's certainly not living with what I need and then some. Um, it was excessive for what I needed and that had me started me on the path to exploring smaller footprint living and uh, originally came across a tiny house. I thought, wow, they're cute. <laughs> really would like to live in one of those. But I didn't think that I was going to be able to fit my lifestyle into one of those weird tiny house things until I came across a model which is called the Alpha Tiny Home. In that model, it demonstrated pretty well to me that my lifestyle could indeed fit into a tiny house and from that point on I was hooked. Um, My involvement in the tiny house industry uh, kind of kicked off when I met with a lovely lady named Jan Stewart and uh, we started talking about housing issues and the potential positive impact that tiny houses could have to a variety of different issues in Australia at the moment and from there I've not looked back. Um, It took quite some time for me to get into my own tiny house, especially with the barriers that we face here in Australia. But, yeah, once I dug my heels in, uh, there was only one way I was going. So, yeah, um, I'm now happily living in my tiny house here in St Kilda on an 850-square-metre block. And, it's yeah, it's a lovely life. It sounds wonderful. And you talked about having this moment of um, not not being sure if your lifestyle could fit into this way of living I'm wondering what your what the transition was like for you what that process was like for you like when downsizing or, or other things that you might be able to share about that yeah certainly obviously there was a huge downsizing process involved I uh, got rid of probably 90 percent of my belongings and um, yeah, so that was very much a purging process. Um, at first, it was difficult, but the more I got rid of, the more free I felt, and the more liberating the experience was. By the end of it, I was ruthless. Mm-hmm. I was 
addicted to the spaces in between, I like to put it. And I'm even that way now. If I find my tiny house gets a little bit more cluttered than than I like it to, um, I start craving the spaces in between. I don't consider myself to be a minimalist, but I certainly like to live with what I need and just a little bit more. The transition, uh, I think for me, it was incredibly important to sit down and do both a values assessment and a needs assessment. And that's something that I do with my my clients, have them reverse engineer their tiny life to suit themselves. Um, Yes, you can buy a tiny house off a business and squeeze your tiny life, your life into a tiny home. But I personally feel it works much better to be able to assess your needs, assess your values, and then engineer the tiny around that concept those concepts that to me leads to a higher quality of life within the tiny home absolutely and I love how you talked about values and needs and I'm I'm wondering from there for yourself you know what were some of those most important values for you that you really had to include when it came to the different features in your home When it came to uh, needs, I needed to make sure that it was comfortable. I needed to uh, make sure that I wasn't losing too much of my my lifestyle, that I could entertain within the space, that I could relax within the space, that I could do my hobbies within the space, either internally or externally. One of the most useful techniques that I'll run my clients through is sitting down and having a look, uh, writing down everything you love to do, writing down all of the equipment that uh, is needed to do those things, working out from that equipment list how often you do those things. Are they something that needs to take up space within your tiny house or is it something that you can borrow higher or lend? Um, reducing the amount of physical possessions that you have within the tiny home. And if it is something that you must keep, then designing a space for that within your home uh, rather than having to move it around regularly, making sure that the space functions for you as an individual was very important. As far as values, um, I have a big value in connection. That links in for me to the socialising and also um, I have a value in sharing information as well. So could I also use a space to educate and inspire people within the tiny house community uh, as that was always the plan? Beautiful. And how how long have you been in your tiny house? I've been in my tiny house for two years, March just gone. Two years. All right. Well, I, I, yeah, I love this idea of the, the values and needs that you talked about because there's so, there's so many things I guess it gives us to, to consider, like what's most important, how do we actually want to live, how do we spend our days, what you know, areas of the house do we most live in. It's a really, um, a really valuable thing to do at the, the very start of the journey. And, and I'm wondering for yourself, you know, what is one of the most beautiful things what's one of the most positive things for you about tiny life now that you've been living in your home for for the last couple of years it does force me to be a conscious consumer which i am valuing more and more everything in my home is either useful or something that i love and it, that's that's a self-love component as well 
to be surrounded by things that you that make you feel good is um, I think greatly underestimated in its impact on your quality of life. I love the freedom that um, living with reduced expenses gives me. I am one of those people that proactively went the tiny house option. I didn't go that option because I needed to. Quite the opposite, in fact. I, I gave up a corporate role to focus on tiny house stuff. I took a pay cut to do, but I would not have been able to do that had I been living the lifestyle that I was living in uh, in my two-bedroom apartment. One of the things I love most about living in a tiny house, it allows me to focus on things that give me energy, not drain my energy, things that I'm passionate about. Being as fortunate as I am to be in the space that I am with my tiny house, I do love that I'm growing on my own food and have that at least a portion of that part of my life being self-sustainable and the more I get into that, the more joy it brings me. It's definitely a change in values. It's a change in perspective and it's a, it is a change in lifestyle but at the same time I've managed to keep those lifestyle elements that were important to me intact. Yeah, I guess it's a... Uh... You know, there's there's an, a period of maybe adjusting and, uh, you know, just as you say, being conscious with your consuming and behaviours and lifestyle choices. And, uh, you know, I, I guess everyone can also sort of make their tiny house and their tiny house lifestyle, you know, according to, again, what you came back to at the start of the values and their needs. And I'd also love to know, so you talked about, one of the or what you love most but what about something that might be challenging for you about living in a tiny house uh when i first moved into the tiny house getting used to being totally off grid um where i am i'm completely disconnected from the grid i am not totally on sustainable resources i do have a 45 kilogram gas bottle but yeah monitoring my solar um learning about composting toilets and yeah and managing my resources I found that challenging to adjust to getting my head around the solar alone um, every time I thought I had it down pat. I didn't and <laughs> had to learn some more for a little while there. So that was quite challenging. Uh, the composting toilets, uh, originally I had a, a separator-type composting toilet in here that wasn't working for me, that wasn't suitable. Uh, so I had a moment of panic that, oh, no, have Am I going to have to live with a system that's not suitable? But thankfully, managed to switch that out and find a system that is suitable, that is, is easy to maintain. I think that does take a little bit of adjusting to. It's not nearly as, as gross as some people think it is. Um, it's something that I, I need to maintain once every six to seven months and it's a half an hour job. So it's not so, it's not so bad and I always have assistance when doing that. So that's been challenging. In a tiny house, you do need to manage how you place a tiny house is very important. So I was very thankful that I did some sun mapping on this property to place the house in a semi-passive position. So, for example, when the, um, when the sun comes up in summer, it doesn't come streaming in through my front windows and turn my place into an oven in winter, though, when the sun comes up, it comes streaming through my front windows. Uh, and warms my place up very, very quickly. Tiny houses should be very well insulated, but they do lose a lot. If you're like me and you want a lot of light, 
you do lose a lot of heat through windows, as you and I discussed before the call. Um, I do have to have a lot of have curtains up in the window, but then, then I'm kind of sacrificing the, the amount of natural light that I get. So that's been something that I've needed to adjust to in order to keep the tiny house in internal temperature at an optimum. Uh, it's meant tweaking and adjusting, but I think I've got that down packed now. Still in chilly mornings, it's the same with any place. You want to get up and make it toasty as soon as you possibly can, you know. Um, I could probably get around that by having uh, a timer on the heater and having it click on before I get out of bed. Um, but I like to manually manage those things so I don't drain my batteries by accident. So, yeah, there's a few things like that. I had to change the way I think about my uh, resources and how I manage uh, the internal environment in extreme weather. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for living say in an apartment or in a house in a in a modern city based lifestyle and then transitioning into tiny house living where it's making you um, more involved in the everyday workings of your your home like what you're talking about with like the weather can the control and and you know different types of things with your solar and composting toilets but I know speaking to so many different people as well as saying it it does really connect you more to your to your everyday life where before maybe things were out either outsourced or out of sight, out of mind, and you didn't really have to worry about them. But then you're kind of learning this new way of being um, with, with being involved in all these different processes. And uh, I'm wondering with your composting toilet that you talked about, uh, so do you have a split system composting toilet now? Is it, and are you a, would you be able to share which one is working for you? Uh, yeah, look, well, what I'll do is I'll flick you through uh, a link you can share with your podcast if you like. I did have one that was an internal unit, meant emptying it by carrying it out through the tiny house, um, which is something that I was paranoid that there was going to be a spill or a mess and I found that that unit was, yeah, had a smell about it. It wasn't overpowering and stuff. But when it was full, I didn't want to carry that smell through my home at all, you know. Um, now I have a, like a drop chute system. So it, go, it drops goes down through the floor into a big barrel. It's a unit provided by EcoFlow. Once a week, I'll go in summer, I'll go out there and I'll turn a handle and give it a turn. As long as you're putting the right things into it, keeping the microbes balanced and all of that, no smell at all. There's a fan connection on the back of the toilet that makes sure air is flowing into the toilet, out through the side wall and up and dispersed over the roof. So um, this unit works so much better for me. It looks uh, very much like a standard toilet, unless you're looking down the chute, of course, but you can't really see anything because mm-hmm. it's nice and dark anyway. And I'd imagine, yeah, it's, it's about finding the one that, that works for your situation and, again, your needs and, and all of that too. So that's good to, to know that you found one that works for you. And I'd, I'd love to shift gears here a little bit, Elle. So, you know, there's something unique ab- about your tiny home and, firstly, that it's parked in the suburbs of St Kilda, which I guess is different to most tiny houses who typically live in rural areas. And then, Secondly, I know that your tiny home was maybe the first or one of the first to get pre-approval from a council for long-term tiny house living in uh, a suburban or yeah, in an urban environment. So before we dive into the process that you went through for your local council, I'd love if you were able to if maybe first set some context with 
an overview of the current situation when it comes to regulations for tiny houses on wheels. Since in Australia they're classed as caravans and there's no specific legislation. So are you able to maybe talk us through just what the situation is with that when it comes to state and council level in Australia and then maybe later on we can just talk about it in general, some things for people to consider um, when it comes to tiny houses in their local area or country. But, yeah, let's go Australia first. Yeah, sure. So tiny houses are neither legal nor illegal in Australia. They don't fit the National Construction Code, so they don't lend themselves to traditional bricks and mortar housing. Uh, there are certain elements in a tiny house that just don't fit that code. For example, lofts, head clearance and stairs and things like that. But tiny homes also, even though they're classified as caravans, don't neatly fit the caravan code either. But yet they are classed as caravans. Um, with that classification of caravans, they, um, it, well, for example, here in Victoria, with that classification as caravans, they need to adhere to the state road rules. And they have slight variables um, state by state. So if you're looking to you're looking to create a tiny house or purchase a tiny house, you do need to be familiar with those uh, road rules in your state and understand what the limitations are. There is some work being done on a national constru- uh, on a construction guide by the Australian Tiny House Association, which I think is a very important body of work. There um, is also work being done by certain certain elements of the community. There's two schools of thought. One of the National uh, Construction Code should be amended in order to cater for tiny homes, or that there should be a second class of caravan that is more appropriate for tiny homes uh, and therefore creating a quality standard and safety control in these caravans. So a reason I think it is important for there to be regulations uh, developed around tiny houses or at least standards is there are people out there doing silly things like getting an old Uh, 70s caravan and knocking the top off it and thinking that they can build a tiny house structure on top of that. And the problem with that is caravan chassis um, can have hairline fractures that you just can't see before you knock the top off it. You knock the top off it, you're likely to create more hairline fractures. Those chassis are designed for the specific structure in mind, including the load, distribu- uh, the load distribution and the weight bearing capacity of those types of chassis. I do think there's an incredible um, opportunity for regulations to put in quality control around the foundations that a tiny house is built on and guidance uh, around the weight distribution and load bearing capacities. Yes, there are limitations on the rating of a trailer. So say if the trailer was rated to 4.5 tonne, having some guidance for the community that, yeah, if you build the tiny house all the way up to 4.5 tonne and then put another tonne of furniture in there, you're actually over the capacity of the trailer and we're swapping that trailer uh, with time if it's stationary for a long period of time. So, yeah, I am all for DIY um, builds, but I am very passionate about people knowing what they know and knowing what they don't know. Now, when it comes to electrical, gas and plumbing, having professionals sign off on that, not only for safety reasons, but 
to retain resale value uh, of the tiny house as well. So uh, what's happening at the moment is the audience and the community is becoming a lot more savvy around uh, these quality control elements. So the DIY models that aren't, aren't being having those crucial elements put together by a professional and signed off by a professional are finding it harder and harder to sell their DIY models. That trailer component is something that I'm particularly passionate about. It's like the same, the same as any house. It's, it needs a quality foundation. And I think this is one of the things that gets in the way of councils being more accepted, accepting of tiny houses in an urban setting is because of those variables. Good news is there's a lot more educated councils out there now that want to know, they'll go, well, we want to see architectural designs. We want to see the quality that's gone into the build. We want to know that the person putting in a proposal to place a tiny house is the product expert and are working uh, with the relevant tradespeople in order to place a quality home in a local environment. So, yeah, councils are also becoming more savvy, which I think is great. So um, as far as nationally, there is changes in policy happening. So, for example, in New South Wales, there was a change that those impacted by emergencies could indeed live in caravans and, and therefore tiny houses for a period of two years while they are uh, rebuilding their lives. It's worded slightly differently than that, but on that, if you look closely at many councils' policies, there is a place for tiny house, but you do need to do your homework. You do need to have commitment and you do need to have the tenacity to dig those pieces out in order to support any proposal you're putting forward when placing a tiny home. It, it is challenging, <laughs> but I think it's so worth the effort. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, you know, there's a few things that you said in there. So you're talking about the the road rules and vehicle regulations when it comes to registrations, size limits, transporting and towing and, you know, the trailers and all of that. And then talking about there's building codes to consider and then there's planning and dwelling rules, although they're not directly referring to tiny houses on wheels. When it comes to registering a caravan or therefore a tiny house on wheels are you able to let us know like just the process of doing of doing that for someone like if they've just either diy built or they've gone through a a building company yeah so there's a few different ways to think about that if it is important for you to have your tiny house registered as a caravan then it needs to be uh, as close to the caravan code as possible And if you want to insure your tiny house, uh, the only appropriate insurance for tiny houses at the moment uh, generally is caravan insurance. So therefore, the caravan codes very strongly apply to the build of your home. And again, you need to think about that much earlier on in your, uh, very early on in your journey in order for it to meet or tick those boxes from an insurance perspective. When it comes to transporting a tiny house, that's being handled in two ways. Uh, some people are, oh, three ways really. Well, some people are registering a trailer prior to its build. Others are registering once the tiny house is built, which is a, uh, often a more challenging 
look, I haven't looked at this process for a couple of years now, but um, last I was, uh, last I heard quite some time ago that that was much more challenging to do. And then there is the transit of the tiny house that needs to be considered. You do need to refer to your local state road authority rules. Is it 2.5 metres wide? Does it meet the rating of the trailer in uh, in transit? If it meets all of those requirements, then you can get a permit for a, a day or two days to move a tiny house. So it doesn't need to be registered the whole time while standing. So there are a lot of people that are going that option as well. But it does need to be registrable. Registrable. (laughs) You know what I mean. To be able to do that. It is worth, if you are going to go that option, getting a good understanding of whether your foundation and your trailer can be registered very early on. Because you don't want to build the tiny house and then and you build it to the 4.3-metre uh, high limit, which is necessary for it to be going under most standard power lines, to find that you are not allowed to take it on the road. And then all of a sudden you have to um, try and move it on a flatbed trailer, but then you're limited on, sorry, a flatbed truck, um, and then you're limited to what routes you can go due to the height of power lines and things like that. So there's so much to be considered. You need to consider your, um, if you put it on a flatbed truck, that extends the length of the entire vehicle used in transit and that may impact your turning circles at the other end when you're thinking about the entrances to the property that you want to place it on. So there's a whole heap of uh, planning. I think a lot of people out there do oversimplify it and they do think of tiny homes as a quick fix but it is something again it is something that you need to be very well versed on in order to do it do it well that comes down to that placing on the other end is your tiny house going to bottom out going up a hill are you going to be taking it um are you not going to be able to turn a quarter do you have overhanging branches all of those things that we personally went over and over again given the publicity around this tiny house we needed to get right for both um, a successful placement, but also not to reflect poorly on tiny houses in general. There's a lot to consider. Yeah, that does seem like a lot to consider. And you mentioned before, so to have it registrable, there's that word again, <laughs> as a caravan, would someone just need a VIN number, VI? Vehicle identification number is one of the um, things that they would need, but obviously then to comply with the, is it the Australian design rules that's the regulations for caravans? Um, I do have a link somewhere, escapes me right now, but I do have a link. I'm going to send you a link for that too. Okay, thank you. Yeah, we'll link it to Um, it in the show notes. Yeah, so caravan code. Oh, sorry, there was something else as well. Yeah, so it was the VIN. So people need a VIN and then also comply with the caravan codes that you're talking about. Yeah, so a good way to think about that. So the VIN, uh, all registrable trailers need to have, they need to be rated to a certain way. They need to have VIN numbers. That it, That's very much linked to the foundation, to the trailers for tiny houses on wheels. The requirements to ensure for a caravan is very much linked to the individual insurance agency. 
for example, you wanted to register with this particular insurance agency, they will have their own list. Understanding what that list is as well as they might want fire extinguishers, they, they, you may want to tick the box around um, have the electricals been done by a professional, um, signed off by a pro sparky and things like that. So understanding that what's required from an insurance perspective is very different from what's required from a registering as a caravan um, as a caravan perspective. Building to the caravan code generally helps as much as you can to the caravan code generally helps you insure it as a caravan. But there are sometimes lists in that insurance um, agency's list that there are, are additional things. So doing your research on that in the early stages of your build is important. Insurance is important to you. Yep. And so you mentioned insurance then. If, if anyone's interested, I did an episode, episode number 11 with Paul Bent Belzen, who's a Sydney insurance broker and also owns a tiny house. Uh, if anyone wants to just know a little bit more information about the, the current situation with tiny houses and insurance, uh, and I'll link to that in the show notes too. And there's also something that I know, um, the construction, so the building codes of Australia or the BCA, Am I right in saying that those apply to fixed dwellings, um, like a regular house or something, but if someone was, say, wanting to DIY a tiny house on wheels and were considering applying for a building permit for a tiny house anyway, even though it doesn't specifically refer to it, you mentioned a couple of things before. So you said like the loft and stairs and things like that, but what are some of the limitations when it comes to those different elements within say, the BCA that make it challenging for tiny houses to address? So height clearance is an important one. Bedrooms have to have a certain amount of head height clearance and certain rooms have to have a certain amount of height above uh, above uh, the standard height of a person. So, yeah, that's one thing that there is a restriction around there um, where the National Construction Code doesn't fit. Ladders to a, uh, like I have a ladder in my tiny home that leads to the loft, but it's a storage space, but that wouldn't be appropriate if it was leading to a bedroom. Now, do I have a comfy spot up there that I can curl up and read a book? Yes, I do, but I don't use that as a bedroom space. Also, angles of stairs. A lot of tiny houses also won't have um, safety rails on, on stairs. And the angle of the stairs would be steeper uh, than a traditional home uh, due to the compact nature of a tiny house. So there are a lot of things like that. The Australian Tiny House Association has done some some good work around that and is uh, working towards having some amendments um, submitted for the National Construction Code. So that's exciting. There are a lot of points of difference as well. So when you think about a standard bricks and uh, mortar home, yes, it has to deal with severe winds in a storm or something like that, but a tiny house needs to be able to withstand those severe winds plus travelling down the road at 100 kilometres an hour or preferably 80 kilometres an hour. (laughs) (laughs) And while that is going on, while it's, it's experiencing those three extreme winds, it also needs to withstand the equivalent of a small earthquake. 
because of the vibration on the road uh, and things like that. So the the way a tiny house is anchored um, to the trailer needs to be um, and needs to be considered, and the way a tiny house is anchored when in place, and and how it's placed needs to be considered as well. Now, your um, my understanding is you're correct that when a small footprint house is on fixed foundations and not movable the national construction code does apply and you do need to adhere to that code tiny houses on wheels and tiny houses on skids are the challenging types of housing at the moment because they don't neatly fit the the national construction code but you said the tiny houses on foundations do yeah yeah, so anything that's fixed um, needs to usually standard, and my understanding is that usually uh, standard building permits do uh, apply, whether that be as an owner builder or whether you're having a professional person build it for you. Most councils do require the standard building processes to happen. The When they're on skits or what is considered a movable dwelling or on wheels, such as a tiny house on wheels, that's where that's where it's tricky. That's where it's challenging. Um, quite often when talking to people who think tiny houses are, are a quick fix, do I think they can be a quick fix in the future? Yeah, if all of the all of the things we need to go in around them is put together, yeah, they could be a, um, a quick fix in emergency situations and things like that. But if they are never planning on moving, their, um, moving that small dwelling, then quite often the easiest route is to build something small and have it fixed to foundations if they're never planning on moving it. There's a neat path for them to follow if they don't want to do all the extra leg work that's involved in these weird tiny house things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what about, uh, and I know this differs from state to state and council to council again too, but what about, say, the time range for the maximum amount of time if someone's got a tiny house on wheels slash caravan, what's the maximum amount of time that someone can technically live in that tiny house on wheels um especially if it has a already a main house that's a fixed dwelling on the land yeah this very much uh varies from state by state and council by council and zone by zone there are some restrictions around how long you can stay in a caravan in victoria for me personally when working with port phillip council here managed to find out some information that we could indeed have a caravan within this space and once we had um had established that then the conversation very much shifted to how tiny homes are different from a caravan and built with long-term occupancy in mind i think a lot of councils are becoming more savvy with the what the point of difference is between the two but then there are also councils that will put it into the um, too hard basket and be innovative in, in their approach to tiny houses on wheels and then will strictly follow the limitations around how long you can stay in a tiny house for that given area. So um, there are areas of, uh, of Australia, I don't have a list in front of me at the moment, where if you are a dependent person, you, uh, uh, you're allowed to stay in a tiny house or a caravan permanently if you were dependent on or a relative of that household. 
There are other areas where where it's 30 days and other areas uh, 30 days for the year and 60 days for the year. I've heard of so many different versions of this now. It's, it's interesting because this crazy thing is that um, people can have an Airbnb tiny house and are getting away with renting that out for 300 days of the year, but no one person is staying in it for more than 30 days. Mm. So therefore it is occupied for 300 days of the, of the year, but um, it's not breaking any, um, any of the rules for that area, which is crazy to me because surely the people who are staying long-term in a tiny house have a better understanding of the safe use of that tiny house and how to manage the systems. Yeah, yeah. Lots of grey areas and then, you know, differing from depending on, yeah, the state and the council. And I think in New South Wales where I am, um, as far as I understand, I think it's up to 60 days in a year and if you've got a main dwelling on the land, you can have up to two caravans that need to be occupied, that, that can be occupied full-time, but as you said, members of the household, which I guess, again, is also another ambiguous type of term too, Absolutely. whether it's a direct family member or it's, you know, someone else that they're claiming to be a member of the household. Yeah, absolutely. And um, without going into that, um, a controversial topic, it's it's also like it is what is the family unit? That yeah. the comprehension of what a family unit is now has changed so much from what it was three generations ago. Um, what is um, some people's only family is the family that they've chosen, you know, or who may not have a conventional relationship. I think it's a very dangerous territory for councils to uh, get into being judge and jury on what is the appropriate family unit, uh, unit you know. So it's a, it's a very, it's, it's definitely like a, a minefield for councils. I kind of feel for them, but at the same time, I also know it can be done if they afford a forward-thinking council who are looking for solutions for their constituents. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And what about with tiny houses on foundations? Um, do they have typically like a maximum amount of time someone can live in them, like the ones on wheels do or, or not, that just come under the, the fixed dwelling? Well, I'm going to be completely honest with you and defer to somebody who knows far better about all of that than I do, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which uh, as my focus is very much tiny houses on wheels. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think um, getting in contact with somebody who is, uh, yeah, who is doing tiny houses on skids and has a professional builder on team would probably be the best way to go on that one. Uh, but yeah, I know what I don't know. Yeah, awesome, awesome. No worries. And so there are a few things to consider, like with council that they obviously want to know, you know, how you're responsibly managing your waste and your grey water and those types of things. Um, are you able to share a little bit more about the other types of things that councils are usually like wanting to to look at um, that you're managing responsibly and, and that your impact on the the area that you'd be staying? Yeah, sure. So look, I think it very much depends on the area that you're in. I've heard that people in a rural environment do need to manage uh, what they need to put forward for their council to agree to them being in place there is very different than what you do need to do in a city. 
we met with uh, we met with the planning department for a hypothetical meeting uh, and just uh, and, and sounded them out and we did need to become the they had a lot of questions and I think one of the important thing is is, is that you don't expect council to to jump to answering those questions for you. You have, you need to go in there and you need to be the solution-focused person and the problem solver for your pro, um, proposal rather than expecting the council to be able to be of service and allocate you resources for it. So um, we went through a whole range of things, everything from, well, is the land safe to start with? We were cleaning up the land, getting it into a safe condition. Um, we had architectural draw, uh, drawings submitted. We had, of course, grey water and black water management plans. We had the safety of the tiny house uh, assessed. We, we ended up modifying a window upstairs so there was a safe fire exit from the loft space should anything happen. Um, they wanted to know that there was fire extinguishers. We also had to place the tiny house in accordance with the privacy policies of this residential area. So having the tiny house far enough away from um, the fence as in not to invade anybody else's privacy and be able to look over the fence. Uh, we had elevation mapping done. We have uh, we assessed uh, where uh, water runoff would go and which was a new point really because we were collecting all of the water. But yeah, all of those all of those types of things. There's a whole list of things that if you're putting together a thorough proposal for council and you want them to take you seriously, you do need to take into account. And it and it is a lot of work. Uh, thankfully, I have a habit of surrounding myself with people who I think are far smarter than I am. So <laughs> I did have quite the help in pulling together that initial pack because we were very much starting from scratch with no guidance when placing this tiny house in um, a city environment, let alone a high-profile city environment. So, yeah, there's quite a few, few things to consider. One thing I will say is that it would have been far more challenging had the tiny house not been professionally built um, and had the electricals not been signed off and those types of things, had they not been done to a professional level where the council were comfortable that safety had been addressed first and foremost, we would not have gotten that through. Right. And how long did the process take for you to, uh, to go through the council and put your case together and all of that? And, and were they quite receptive to it? Like was it a, a tricky process or? It was very tricky. We did hit a couple of no's, uh, but I recognised that the no's were more often than not an I don't know. So it was about, okay, so what's the objection? And then going away and uh, going away and handling that objection and coming back to it, back to them and saying, well, here's, here's that solution. What's next? And being able to go through, go through the motions and expect those motions to happen. So it wasn't an easy process. There was a lot of hard work involved. I had someone said, but what you did isn't replicatable. Absolutely it is. Is it a guaranteed solution that you're going to successfully place a tiny house in a city environment not well you can't control the external factors it very much does depend on the open-mindedness of that council and how forward-thinking they are and how innovative they are is the other component there so you can do it beautifully where you choose to place it is very very important um, and the attitude of the council in that area so yeah doing your research on council matters 
it took 20 months for me to get the nod from council. And uh, and there was quite a there's a few times within that 20 months where I'm like, okay, we're finally hit the wall. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. But then you get a new lead, a new uh, idea, or or go to bed and sleep on it and have another idea and up and running the next day and you keep going. And um, but yeah, it can be done. But I think the more and more people do it and do it well, the easier it will be for um, other people to do. So, and I think councils very much discovered that they can't stop this tiny house thing now. So they best get on, best get on board and figure out how to implement them. Will that happen in the next year? Maybe not. But do I think that it will happen um, in the next five to ten years? Absolutely, I do. Yeah, I agree, especially with all the constant and continual, and it's just going to be more and more the need for more affordable housing and then people losing their homes in current and recent events and, and all of that. They're definitely going to have to to look at, um, you know, what's going on with that and and make it more accessible for people. You know, if someone is thinking about wanting to go through the approval process with their local council for a tiny home on wheels, I mean, you said that your process took 20 months, so I'm guessing that people should just start putting in the steps as soon as possible within um, if they're thinking, okay, I'm definitely going to go down this path, and how early should people start to approach council? Yeah, so I think doing your research on council is probably the first protocol. Finding out whether other people in the area, other people have approached, uh, do your research, find out whether other people have approached that council for that reason and what those responses were and what those objections were and start thinking ahead of how you're going to handle those objections should they come up for you. I think it's really important to go in with a wealth of information for council, but don't make the mistake that I did and be so enthusiastic to give them all the information that you have collated that it, uh, it opens up more questions for them. <laughs> I managed to, I think I slowed down my process by three to six months by sharing a little bit too, uh, too much information at points and starting a whole conversation that didn't need to happen. Having that wealth of information there, understanding that all the information that you put together may not necessarily be submitted or even be put in front of them, but having it at the ready should they ask for it, um, to uh, have them take you seriously, prove that you have done your due diligence and that you're not doing this um, just as a quick fix solution for your own personal circumstances. It needs to be approached as housing and and a quality housing at that rather than uh, taking shortcuts. So, yes, do start um, as early on as you can, uh, have as much information as you can. But I think the other thing is also being very conscious about the attitude in which you approach counsel with. Now, uh, approach counsel with a collaboration mindset with a good attitude if you go in there expecting a fight on your hands and you're holding yourself defensively the first time that they're interacting with you and it'll take one look at you and go well he or she sees that there's a lot of problems and a lot of reasons why there's going to be resistance there for them to be on the defensive they'll start looking for problems straight away (laughs) rather than if you go in with solution focused mindset and a collaborative mindset and with consideration to uh, the local environment the local constituents and the council as well 
that is definitely going to impact how your proposal is received. For sure, for sure. And I'm just curious as well because obviously there is the route to go down, um, you know, working with the council and all of that. But then on the other hand, you know, there are a lot of people just in a realistic sense, there are a lot of people that are living in tiny houses, let's say under the radar and maybe haven't gone through council. So I'm not sure um, your thoughts on this, but maybe just from what you know or what you've heard or if someone is living in a tiny house on wheels long term and maybe a neighbour or something um, happens to see that and maybe tells the council something like that happens, do you know what the potential worst consequences of that could be? Like would there usually be some kind of fine or a move-along notice or any legal consequences or is there anything that you have to share about that? Or uh, My understanding is that uh, quite often a tiny house can be asked to move on. Now, I know of one tiny house in the city here, for example, where someone tried to do it self <laughs> Uh, to stealthily have a tiny house built in their backyard with the thought process that once it's built, they can't get it out. (laughs) So council would not be able to now um, have them remove it. Council saw it very differently um, and had them dismantle that tiny home. Mm. Uh, And I think that's probably the worst case scenario, but that was people who had intentionally backed that tiny house into a corner you know, so um, but most of the time it is a case of move, uh, moving on. Now, I'm I'm not opposed to living off radar. I'm pretty passionate about tiny houses, so I was pretty passionate about getting one on the radar in a city in, in environment. There are other are other worst case scenarios to that need to be considered. So, in the case of a bushfire or a flood and an an emergency situation, if people don't know that you're there, you are not going to get resources allocated to you to help you. And I think that's something that people need to be very aware of should um, they want to go off radar, which is, to me, a far worse situation than than being asked to, uh, to move on. Now, being asked to move on, and not having a place to put your tiny house, that incredibly stressful situation, that has happened uh, um, a lot. But there's also councils that have said if it's not a problem, um, if it's not creating a problem, they've also said it's okay for you to stay there. We need we need to know you're managing your rent. What are you doing about waste? What are you doing? Um, what are you doing about all of these things? Answer these things. And if you're not a problem to your community, we have no issue. But they don't publicise that you know, because they don't want to get inundated with a thousand tiny houses within the next months, you know. So um, people who have had that discussion with councillors generally keep it to themselves quite often. With the neighbour element, um, I think that's, you touched on something very important there. Handling issues before they get to council and having good rapport with your neighbours is incredibly important. So before the, before we placed this tiny house here, we had gone around, we campaigned the neighbourhood, uh, we checked in, we addressed all of their concerns long before the tiny house was in, space, in, in the space. Um, there were a couple of issues that uh, came up for the, the local neighbours here and we modified the placement and the design of the tiny house slightly to be accommodating. Council were concerned that it was going, uh, had a big concern that it was going to create problems 
uh, from the local community. So get out ahead of that one. Mm-hmm. Get out, create good relationships, find out what's important to them and do your best to be accommodating within reason. Nurturing those relationship, uh, those relationships really does help you get something processed by council. Yeah, that's definitely a common thing that I've heard about the the neighbourhood and being a good community member and, and all of that too and checking in with neighbours. So, yeah, that's that's great to know. I guess to kind of tie a, a bow and bring things all together because there's a lot of moving parts around these regulations. So just to sum things up and, and you know, feel free to I'll share just my understanding of based on a lot of things that you've said and and then we can kind of, yeah, um, summarize it for people. So I guess in Australia, um, and then, you know, even the, the rest of the world, I, th- I think the first thing would be is to actually understand what the regulations are or what tiny houses are classed as in your local area, in your state, in your region, in your country, that kind of thing. But let's say in Australia, so it's knowing what they're classed as in your state, what they're cla- what councils um, and how they are they friendly towards tiny houses or not, and you know how they deal with um, tiny houses on wheels. And then if you're going to go the route of uh, working with your council, it's getting as much information as possible and you know, making a case for how you're going to be living on the land and how you're going to dispose of your waste and all those different types of things that you that you mentioned today. And then it's also having an awareness of the trailer and the, and the towing and the uh, registration of the caravan or tiny house on wheels. And then it's also knowing that there is a caravan code and that there's also planning and dwelling rules um, within each council as well. And I suppose the more information that we can have and the bigger case that we can build and I guess going about things in the proper way and building a relationship with neighbours and, and that kind of stuff that, you know, there are ways around these different grey areas that are, that are present within the state regulations within the local councils. Is there anything else that you want to add to that just to summarise? Well, yeah, this is kind of taking it off on a bit of a tangent, uh, <laughs> but as you brought up international, educating yourself enough to to know the difference between what is happening overseas and what is happening here. Mm-hmm. There are certain things um, in, that are happening in the US market when it comes to tiny houses that just won't wash here. For example, just an easy one is the size of the trucks over there and what they can tow is completely different the, uh, than the trucks we have here understanding the towing capacity um those big gooseneck trailers are a lot more difficult to to build on here what we see in those the romantic produced tiny house tv shows isn't always realistic for the australian market and the australian tiny house movement so it is worth understanding what those points of differences are so that you don't end up building something that you've modelled off something in the US only to find here that you that, that it's either difficult to place or difficult to tow. So there's a bit of homework to be doing in that space. It's not necessarily a regulatory, regulatory question, um, a regulation question, but when it comes to the function, it's it's something that, uh, that is worth keeping in mind. And unfortunately, things are that too strange for councils to get their head around they are having a harder time being placed on radar. 
working within the framework of what's going on within Australia is definitely um, is definitely something that's worth investigating, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad that you brought that up because it is true. Like there is a lot of information out there. There's YouTube videos and podcasts and, and all sorts of things online. A lot of them are in uh, in the US or even in Europe and stuff, and yeah, it definitely does differ. So that's, that's a really great point. Uh, so I'd love to switch gears again here, Elle, and I know that you're doing so many awesome things within the tiny house space. You've got different services that you're offering, and I know that your newest creation, and there's a platform called Littlefoot. Uh, can you share with us a bit more about that? Yeah, so very passionate about Littlefoot. Uh, Littlefoot uh, was only released a couple of months ago. It is a platform for all things small footprint living here in Australia, both um, not just tiny houses on wheels, but uh, small footprint homes are small, being defined by either size or in environmental footprint. Uh, on that platform, we're starting to list environmentally off-grid products. We're also listing services that relate to the industry as well. So if anyone out there has a business that they would be interested in listing to get in contact with us, then I can talk you through the application process. The goal of Littlefoot is to create a space where you can go in there and compare different types of small footprint housing to help you make a quality choice on what is the best fit uh, for you. Doing that comparison from a list of quality builders as well. So it, that's a new one. Really passionate about that. It's going very well at the moment. Uh, we'll be listing more and more other, the focus has very much been on uh, tiny houses to date, just because by chance the tiny house experts were, uh, expos were running just as we were launching it, but we will be getting more and more other forms of housing within the, in that space. So yeah, keep an eye on that space. Oh, beautiful. We'll link to the that in the show notes as well, if anyone wants to check that out. And I know that you also, and you mentioned it earlier in the conversation, but that you also do, you see clients and you do consulting. How can you let us know more about that? And, you know, what types of things are you helping people with on their tiny house journey? Yeah, so I work with a variety of uh, different people. Um, some people who have just discovered the tiny house concept and are overwhelmed by the amount of information out there. Um, and they're having trouble siphoning through what is appropriate for the Australian market and what is not. So uh, people who are working out whether it is actually a good fit for them or a or whether they're buying into the romance of the, of the movement, for lack of a better way to put it. I also work with, um, I've worked with businesses, tiny house building businesses when it comes to uh, what I'm seeing uh, across the community and helping them refine their models to what is selling well, um, what people are most responsive to. Uh, so I've worked with businesses to define their services. Um, I've worked with different organisations that are look, looking at potentially doing a, a tiny house village type concept or an emergency housing type con uh, concept. Yeah, very much working as a consultant within that space. What else? Yeah, I've been working as an educator. So I've, I'll work with both primary and secondary school kids uh, and also do some work with people researching this topic for their PhD or something through universities. So, yeah. I like to keep it broad. I like to keep it uh, keep it open. I do like to make clear about my consultancy 
new services is that I know what I don't know and if at any point it is if I can think of somebody better for them to speak to I will refer them on so that allows me to be free um frees me up to work with such a that variety you know yeah I know you have some other platforms as well did you want to share a bit more about those I know you've got the tiny non-profit and Australian tiny homes or tiny houses directory yeah so Australian Tiny House Directory was uh, my very first website, actually. So I put that together just to start collating uh, tiny house uh, resources that were specific to the Australian market due to the fact that um, most of the information I was finding at the time was America-centric. So I do feel that that is going to be eclipsed by Littlefoot as I will gradually be merging um, the resources from that platform over to Littlefoot. The Australian Tiny Houses Facebook community is something I hold near and dear. So it's been running for quite a few years now. I think we're at about around 38,000 or something like that. Um, great community, incredibly supportive. So if people have uh, any questions, feel free to put um, jump on, answer the questions and agree to greet, uh, the group rules and join that group. Put a question out to the group. They're a lovely group. Just keep in mind that some people know what they know and some people don't know what they don't know so um please do sense check any information that you're getting uh, within that space as as well because there is a lot of helpful people there with good intentions but the uh, sometimes the information may not be the highest quality but that's the nature of a community group right totally totally awesome well l is there anything that you feel like maybe we haven't covered today when it comes to either the regulations situation around tiny houses or even just anything that you wanted to, to leave the listeners with, especially if maybe they're at the start of their tiny house journey looking towards this way of living? Yeah, look, there's nothing wrong with getting out and um, getting involved in the movement and campaigning the local councils and writing letters to your local councils in support of tiny houses in your area, even if you don't have your full plan to together yet. Having that, using that to tease out some information for yourself to find out what their attitude is towards tiny houses, and that's something that's definitely worth. So it's not necessarily a regulation thing, but more a teasing out of attitudes thing. But that helps drive the movement along. It helps get councils thinking, well, we're getting more and more interest in these tiny houses things. So it doesn't only just benefit you as an individual, it also benefits the larger community as well. If you're considering doing um, going off the radar, putting out letterbox campaigns, getting to know particular, uh, particular areas, particular people in particular areas, putting the word out is a very successful pass that a lot of people are taking. Yeah, and when you're selecting an area, do your research on what makes a good site. Whether you're off-radar or on-radar, selecting a good site will definitely impact your life experience within that space and having a site that is appropriate um, for a tiny house to be placed on um, will definitely impact a council's decision when you're asking to place a tiny house as well. I think we've touched on, I've touched on a lot today. Other than that, if people want to really drill down, yeah, happy to do a consultancy call to see if I can help them. Perfect. That sounds great. Thank you so much for that. And I think that's really uh, beautiful words to end on. 
So uh, Elle, where is, and I've got your Linktree link, which I'll put in the show notes, but if you want to share maybe the website of Littlefoot um, and any other links that uh, people can come and follow you on. Littlefoot.homes. Littlefoot.homes. Okay, perfect. Yes, that'll be in your link tree in the show notes. And if you're listening at home and you want to check out the show notes, you can find those at tinyhouseconversations.com. And Elle, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your sharings today. I loved hearing your story and thank you for all that information about the the state of tiny houses and the sort of council and state situations. And I I really appreciate your time today. I think it's going to be valuable for a lot of people to hear this. So thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure as well. And if you're listening to us at home, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be here with us. If you want more Tiny House Conversations, stay tuned every Thursday as new episodes go live. And I'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. And if you enjoyed the conversation today, you found it valuable and you want to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is to share the love. That way I can keep bringing you more tiny house conversations to help you on your own tiny journey. So here are three ways that you can support the podcast. Number one, if you have a friend or family member that you feel would benefit from hearing these conversations, feel free to share it with them, email them, text them, send them a telegram, do whatever you need to do to share it with them. Number two, if you hit the subscribe button, you'll know exactly when the next episode is live. And number three, if you head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts and leave a five-star rating and review. Thank you so much in advance. I appreciate you and I'll see you in the next episode.